Well, this sermon series through the book of Acts took a major turn last Sunday as we highlighted the church in Antioch. The gospel has gone out to the Gentile world, and this church, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, is what we called a church on fire. And if you missed last Sunday, such a vital Sunday if you call this church home, because we looked at the church in Antioch and we said, okay, what is it about what God was doing there 2,000 years ago that we're seeing happening at ACC, but where are some gaps where we're missing it and needing to ask for more of God? That's one you cannot forget about, because the switch that happens in the book of Acts is the center of the church goes from being Jerusalem to this church in Antioch. Except there's one more moment that's going to circle back to Jerusalem in a miraculous way, and that is the story we're going to read about today. Before we turn there, I want to give you the title of the sermon. The title of the sermon is called, Our Source of Strength. Our Source of Strength. Look at somebody next to you say, be strong. Be strong. We're going to talk about strength today. Be strong. And I want to preach about where you reach when you feel weak and inadequate. In Acts 12, we're going to see the church with her back against the wall. There's persecution happening. Their leader is potentially about to be executed. And the church's response when strength is needed to be reached for is not just something to emulate as a church family, but something that I want to call us to individually because we all have moments where you become so depleted on the inside that you have to reach for another source for strength. Except when you read the Bible, reaching for strength from God happens upside down of the way human nature tells us to find what makes us feel strong and look strong and like everything's okay on the outside. So all we're gonna do today is read this tragic but hilarious and amazing story in Acts chapter 12 and ask the question, what does this mean for me and for you when life feels like I cannot go on another day if the God of the universe doesn't come through with some kind of supernatural strength. And the great thing about this message is I think it applies equally to someone in the room who doesn't even believe what we're claiming to believe when we sing these songs out loud. If you're here and you're going, I don't buy into this God thing, I don't know what everybody's freaking out, raising their hands about, I definitely don't know what that video from your seven nights of prayer was about. I would argue, even if you're not a believer in Jesus, you would have to agree life has a way of beating you down and needing a source to find strength to go on. And I just want to show you, based on what the Bible teaches, how you can find that strength in the God of the Bible, who's not just the God of the Bible, he's also your heavenly father who made you and loves you and is pursuing you. Did you bring your Bible to church this morning on Labor Day weekend? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Y'all look around. That is crazy. Hold it up high. Just crazy. Somebody say, I love my Bible. Turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. This is so good. I hope you like who you're sitting next to because you're all sitting next to somebody. Go ahead and look at the person you're sitting next to. Tell them, I'm so glad I ended up next to you for this sermon. So glad. Just community being built all over the place. Acts chapter 12 is called Peter's Miraculous Escape from Prison. And although it's kind of a a fun, lighthearted story with miraculous power, it begins very, very tragic and very scary. And so we're just going to read a couple of chunks of this passage, and I'll explain it as I go, and then we'll apply it to our lives. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, if you're there, say I'm there. 
It was about this time, what time? The time when the church in Antioch started. So we're, we're on the same time scale. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Verse five, this is key. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So there's this leader in the Roman world named Herod. There's a lot of Herods in the New Testament of the Bible. This one in particular was a guy who had a fall from grace and was actually imprisoned in Rome for a while. Now someone else gained power and gave him his power back. But he is such an insecure leader that he lives off the approval of the particular geographical area where he's leading. And so he notices that when he imprisons these leaders from this particular sect of Judaism, the Jews really like it. And then when he puts to death James, the brother of John, with the sword, they like him even more. Y'all, this is a big deal. This is one of the three guys that was closest to Jesus. This is one of the sons of thunder. This is not the James who wrote the book of James, by the way, in the New Testament. That, all that still has to happen, and that other James is going to pop up in just a few chapters in the book of Acts. But this is a massive moment testing the church. I would say with equal weight as what happened to Stephen just a few chapters ago. James, one of the sons of thunder, dead by the sword on the whim of a tyrant. And when he finds out how much the crowd likes it, he grabs Peter, who's an even bigger deal than James, and all he's doing is waiting for the time to come where a festival's gonna pass, and he's going to do the same thing to Peter. And verse five tells us, while Peter's in chains in prison, the church is earnestly praying, but it looks pretty helpless at this point. Let's look at verse six. It says, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. This is amazing. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. Anybody ever been awakened in the middle of the night and you're like, the next morning, did that really happen? That's kind of what we're seeing here. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. 
Y'all, this is written exactly the way a narrative would be written about somebody getting awakened out of nowhere in the middle of the night. An angel comes to Peter, has to like, not just flick him, but almost like strike him to get him to get up and put his clothes on. He's thinking, this is a vision, like the vision I had with the whole Cornelius thing. I'm just, I'm just kind of going through the motions like it's a dream. Incidentally, last night, this exact similar thing happened to Courtney and I at about 9.30 p.m., which we were already asleep, which is sad, but also awesome. And, um, and, and we thought it was like the middle of the night and Elliot's upstairs screaming and then Courtney came downstairs. She's sure it's 1.30 a.m., it's 9.30 p.m. And, and, and then we were talking about it this morning and it was almost for both of us, like, did that actually happen? That's what's going on with Peter as he's like sleepwalking out of jail. Chains are falling off of him. Gates are being opened that can't otherwise be opened. And all of a sudden, the angel's gone. He's on the streets of Jerusalem, was going to be killed after a short sham trial. Now he's freed up to do whatever he wants to do in his home city of Jerusalem. What happens next? Let's keep reading. Verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You can't make this up. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Watch the irony here. Even though they're praying for a miraculous deliverance for Peter, they find it more believable that Peter has died and his angel is at the door than that their prayers have actually been answered. Like, they're like, like, oh, well, even if it is him, it's just, well, clearly they decided to kill him sooner. It's his angel. Their minds can't even go there that what they are leaning in and praying to God for might actually be theirs. Verse 16. But Peter, he stuck outside, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, that's the other James, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Let's finish it. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Watch this, y'all. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Wow. Peter, continually knocking on the door, finally gets let in, and they're rejoicing at the supernatural deliverance of God. And that narrative ends with a narrative where the exact opposite happens to both the guards and to Herod. The entire narrative of Acts chapter 12 is what is called a dichotomy in the Bible. 
it shows kind of two upside down realities. And on the front end, you have Herod and his power and strength and tyranny. And on the other hand, you have Peter and the church and their helplessness and their weakness and their inadequacy and their inability. And what happens in this narrative is that the script ultimately becomes flipped. Thank you, Coach Freeze. And everything goes upside down in one fell swoop. Look at verse five, Acts chapter 12, verse five. So Peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, I want y'all to pay so close attention to this verse because this is the key verse of the entire narrative. While Peter is enchained and weak and oppressed and has no ability to do anything, the church is earnestly praying to God for him. And on the surface, one of those things looks like strength and one of those looks like weakness and desperation. The strength is with the Romans. The strength is with the persecutors. The strength is with everything that stands against the things of God. And what is the church doing? The church is earnestly praying. And on the surface, that looks like the weakest, most helpless response you can possibly have. Look up at me and do not miss this. Never underestimate the strength that can be found in earnest prayer to God. Prayer might look like that final lifeline, like when I have no other option, I have nothing to reach for, and I'm just helplessly hoping that God might do something. It's actually the church that's in the most position of strength, even though on the surface it looks like everything is the opposite. Now, how does this collide with our lives? I believe this this collides really, really closely with our lives today because I think there are some people within the sound of my voice who are not chained to a wall in the Roman Empire awaiting a trial for their life, but you are equally chained to the false belief that you must feel strong to be strong. We got Christians that feel like the sensation of strength in our lives equals strength when scripture teaches that the ultimate source of your strength is actually found on the opposite end of feeling strong and being desperate. And I don't have a ton to say in light of this passage other than to say, I believe it is a superpower in the Christian life to learn to embrace weakness instead of run from it because it can become your source of greatest strength. Instead of staying in that place where all your sin and all your frustration and all your inconsistency and everything about you that you wish was different and everything about you that you wish would have been transformed a while ago, when that no longer becomes the thing that's stopping you from experiencing the presence of God, but actually becomes your portal to experiencing more of God, now the thing that you think is keeping you from God and from experiencing supernatural breakthrough is actually the key to you opening your eyes and seeing it's right in front of your face. Like the space God wants to meet the church is not in the spaces where we feel the most self-sufficient and strong. It's in in the spaces that we feel the most disconnected from God and desperate and like things are never going to change. I'm saying your weakness is actually an advantage in the Christian life. I'm saying that part of you, the the thing on the inside of you that you wish was the most different about you right here and right now might be the one way that God wants to display his power and strength in and through your life. And it's in a way that he can't any other way because this is the spot where his power is made perfect. Acts chapter 12, 
shows a biblical narrative that goes cover to cover in the Bible, there's one verse in the Bible that God just keeps saying over and over and over again. And even when he doesn't say it out loud through writers, he says it through narratives. James talks about it in James chapter four, verse six, when he says, but he, God, gives more grace. That is why scripture says, God, this is the verse, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. If you ask me, Miles, Genesis to Revelation, what are like a few themes that God is trying to get across to humanity? This would be top five. God exalts the humble, but humbles those who exalt themselves. God shows favor and brings power and strength to those who are laid low, but to those who would position themselves in a position of exaltation, they are humbled. You see this with Herod. What does he do? He gets in front of this crowd and he's enjoying them saying out loud, this is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. And the same one who thought he could kill God's servants on a whim is now being eaten by worms in a moment just because he did not utter praise to God. God sends his spirit in a powerful way to those who are humble, but he brings low those who fail to cultivate a spirit of humility. Now, here's the problem. When I talk about humility, the vast majority of you think I'm saying something that I'm not. Because the version you have in your head about humility is some kind of false sense of lowering yourself and not looking too good in the eyes of other people. That's not biblical humility. Biblical humility is a correct view of yourself in light of the glory of God. Humility is more than making little about your accomplishments and more of an inner spirit that always looks within to find where God can bring transformation, not without to find out how they and them can do better and be better. See, your, your humility is not just the doorway to healing and more of God in your relationship with him, but I believe it is the doorway to healing in interpersonal relationships. And if you pulled me to the side after church today and said, hey, in this crazy season, what is one thing that God is showing you personally? Like just nothing to do with anything you're preaching right now, but what is God showing you in your life as a leader, as a dad, as a friend? God is showing me personally that humility is a superpower and pride is more lethal than you could ever imagine. Relationally speaking, I am watching people sabotage their entire lives and futures simply because they don't have eyes to look inward for where God needs to bring transformation and they continue to blame the circles of people around them on what is wrong with their lives. The lack of humility is the number one reason for family strife. It's the number one reason for marital strife. It's the number one reason for interpersonal conflicts within this church because our knee-jerk reaction is to look for strength within ourselves and point out weaknesses without and we go, I'm, clearly I'm not a part of whatever the problem is here, but if, if they change that and they change this and they, and, and Courtney and I have found it so transformative to make it your posture that even when it is 99.9% .9 them, humility has the capacity to dig for that point one within and go, hold on, hold on. There was still a part of me that was way too easily offended. There was still a part of me that was way too sharp and way too, no, 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 no. And humility will keep you dead center in the blessing and the outpouring of more of God and pride will spoil what God is trying to pour out in your life. And the problem is you can't get humility by being inspired during a sermon. 
You're not going to leave here and be more humble. Humility is not a character trait you can work on. Humility is the byproduct of close proximity to Jesus. And so if we're going to get a source of strength from God today, I believe your strength is found in acknowledging and embracing inner levels of weakness. But it's allowing those weaknesses to usher you to the feet of Jesus so that in light of my close proximity to him, it's not that I'm damaging my self-worth. It's not that I view myself as nothing, but it's that I'm looking so within at what is weak and inadequate about me, and I'm bringing it to the feet of Jesus and allowing my life to be lived in light of who he is. I'm telling you at now 35, had a birthday this week, 35 years old, this is the portal in, sorry, I spit on my mic, into more of God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. You guys know this verse. He said, but he said to me, this is when Paul was asking God to remove this thorn in his flesh. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The church in Acts is at her strongest when Peter is about to be killed for no reason, and they're desperately pleading to God for his life. You and I are not at our strongest once all the ducks are in a row and the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and life finally looks the way we wanted it to look and we're consistent in our quiet times and our relationships are all functioning and everything's humming and everything's going. No, Paul says it's the thorn in my side while breakthrough is happening everywhere else. This thing that I thought God should have gotten rid of a long time ago, he said, I'm gonna leave it there, but I'm not leaving it there just to bother you. I'm leaving that weakness there because it's producing in you the reliance and the dependency you need to become a portal into your true strength, which is my power. Like what if the fact that you can't get over that thing is an advantage because it drives you headfirst to the feet of Jesus? What if that relationship that you've been begging God, make this different, make her different, make him different. What if them bothering you is the doorway to your own transformation? Because you keep having to circle back in your time with the Lord and look inward instead of look outward because they won't change. And what if all these frustrations that you wish would just shake free and be different are actually invitations from God to go, I'm transforming you and forging the image of Christ on the inside of you. And I do my best work at that when life is not all as it should be and when you feel like you can't go on. Today, I don't know if I've ever stood in front of you more in the condition of a sermon than I am right now. I am just completely overwhelmed by all God has done the past month. And other than the Holy Spirit moving through me while I'm up here, you know, it's hard for me right now to put two coherent thoughts together. I think I had COVID a couple weeks ago. But, um, but, but, but you know, anybody get that brain fog after and you're like, I cannot think? Yes, a lot of you, you're like, yeah, I got it at that worship. Uh, anyway, um, but I like, I, I've, just, I've just felt this, this shaking that's it's more than physical. It's like a, a, a spiritual sifting. And... I would love to be in front of you 
firing on all cylinders and thinking 100% and shouting 100% and have a million illustrations that come to mind. But I believe God's power moves most potent through weakness. And I'm here to tell you, I'm, I'm like thinking about one thing right now. Your strength is found desperately pleading for mercy at the feet of Jesus. So you should go there and you should do that. And, and what he'll give you when you go there is uh, more than the power that you need because he's not a vending machine. It's the love that you need because he's a father. And I have sensed the embrace of God on my neck more when I feel like I can't go on, can't handle this, can't think straight, can't figure it out. I'm telling you when God draws you near, he does more than go, let me give you enough power to face the day. He speaks identity over you and he says, you're my son, you're my daughter. I know this is a lot and I know it's painful, but isn't this awesome? Like Acts 12, it's so weird because it starts so tragic and hard, but then it's kind of fun. And you got angels opening doors and knocking stuff off and you're, you're supernaturally appearing at the front door of the church meeting and they don't even believe that it's you at the front and then leaders are getting deposed and all this cool stuff is happening and while the church is just kind of overwhelmed and I can barely face another day, angels are being moved on assignment and God is pouring out miracles and you kind of look up and you go, this is overwhelming and it is a lot just like Paul, but man, I, this is kind of awesome. This is the life that God has for you. And so many of you have been looking for that strength from God on the other side of finally getting life where you wanted it to be. And I, I, I hope things work out for you. I hope you meet your goals. I, I hope God blesses your life in a special way. I'm not speaking anti-blessing on your life. I'm just saying, stop viewing the strongest version of your spirituality where everything looks as it should and start viewing the strongest version of your spirituality humbly, earnestly seeking God in prayer. There's more of God available in prayer. Here's the whole sermon. I got one point today, and I hope this was worth coming to church on Labor Day weekend. Um, one point. Our source of strength in this life looks like this. Embracing desperation. Our source of strength equals embracing desperation. The whole sermon today is to convince you to not recoil away from your areas of greatest need, but move to them and articulate them in the presence of God and with other people. Desperation is a weapon. If you cultivate it and let the spirit of God fill you in light of it. And I'm not talking about theoretically believing, I know I need God and I know I have areas of inadequacy. No, I'm talking about bringing them to the feet of Jesus and saying them out loud because faith lacks a lot of power in your life as long as your faith goes underexpressed. And we got so many people who have a prayer life that's more theoretical than literal, and that's why the power is equally as theoretical and not literal. Because when your prayers are all in your head, they lack what? The portal for God to get glory on the other side of them. So you need to learn how, in Jesus' name, what is your need in the presence of God? And maybe it's not, I got to run away from all the areas that I want to avoid in the presence of God. It's like, no, my greatest need is that I can't figure out how to create any kind of consistency in my relationship with God. My greatest need is my parents' diagnosis, or my greatest need is my marriage right now, or my greatest need. You bring that thing to the feet of Jesus, and what you will notice is God's mighty hand, when you humble yourself under it, has a way of turning and lifting you up in due time.
but you don't create the space for that interaction to happen if there's no intimacy with him. And I think the reason why we're running from intimacy with him is because we know if I go to him, he's gonna go to that place. Okay, you're right. He is gonna go to that place, but he's not going there to punish you. He's going there to heal you and free you. I told you I'm I'm seeing humility as a superpower everywhere right now. I was reading uh, a story to my middle daughter, Elliot, about Naaman, you know the story of Naaman in 2 Kings? And the night after I read it to her, it was my Bible reading in 2 Kings. I'm like, God, what are you trying to show me about Naaman? Naaman is this, uh, this soldier in Aram who takes captive an Israelite slave girl and then he gets leprosy. And then the slave girl is like, by faith goes, you need to go see Elisha, he will heal you. And so he goes, finds Elisha and Elisha says, wash seven times in the Jordan river and you'll be healed. You know what Naaman does? He scoffs. He goes, we have, we have better water in Aram than you guys have in Israel. I'm not going to wash. I thought you were just going to say you're healed. Whatever, man, I'm going home. And his servants run after him and they say, hey, we know you wanted like an immediate miracle, but um, wouldn't it be better if you listened to the prophet and I don't know, humbled yourself like a little bit because then you might get healed of leprosy. Like they're trying to talk to him and be like, hey, in case he's right, you might not want to leave the Jordan. And it says, even though Naaman scoffed at the word of the prophet, he turned and he got in the Jordan River seven times and he was healed. What was God saying through that story? Healing happens after humility. It comes. I just wanted the word. I didn't want to have to wash seven times. You know how long that takes? Healing takes time. Where have you been running from the invitation to humble yourself under God's mighty hand? And maybe all church is on Labor Day weekend is doing the work of getting to the feet of Jesus and letting him be your source of strength again. Great thing about everything I'm saying right now is that it's basically the gospel. The key of what Jesus has done for us to save us on the cross is that we could never do this for ourselves. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a picture of helplessness and need, but what a picture of the one space where we have absolutely nothing to offer. God has poured out the blood of his son to give you absolutely everything as a son or a daughter. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, today is an invitation to bow. And go, I've been running from declaring my need for God, but now, I'm here and I want God to be my source of strength. Maybe today is the day you say yes to Jesus and then you get baptized in a couple of months and celebrate with your church family what the blood of Jesus has done. I do not know where this collides with you, but I want God to download it in our midst as we take communion together. You can go ahead and get your elements out for communion. And if you didn't get them on the way in, wherever you are in this building or at another location or at airport road, just raise your hand right where you are right now and they will bring them to you. We have communion stations set up in the corners of this room if you want to come bow and spend time uh, ripping off a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice as well. Uh, This is an invitation for husbands to pray over their wives. Um, But God's presence is in this space. And especially given what just happened over these seven nights of prayer, I really want to ask humbly that if you're in this gathering, that from now until the end of the gathering, you not leave unless you absolutely have to. 
Because number one, there's like hundreds of people as you are leaving who wish they had your seat. And number two, with what God is doing in a moment like this, it can be so distracting to someone hearing from the spirit of God. So we're not in a hurry to go get to Labor Day plans. We're in this moment watching the spirit of God be poured out. Let's let God move as we take communion together and then we'll sing in a few minutes.